Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bard Flies, a podcast about dictators, conspiracies, assassination plots, pointed eulogies, and why you should always listen to your psychic when they tell you to postpone a major business meeting. This week, we return to ancient Rome to discuss the unkindest cut of all in Julius Caesar. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode 21, Give Caesar His Coup. Et tu, Brute! James, do you want to give us a uh, rundown of the plot in this fine work of tragedy? Tragedy and history, Will. 44 years before the birth of Christ, the Roman general Julius Caesar is riding high on the crest of yet another military victory, this time over the sons of his former co-ruler and rival Pompey, who had been loosely aligned with the members of the Senate. But all will is not well in the Roman Republic. Although Caesar is newly popular with the plebeians, his victories and his ambition to cement his status as Rome's leader worry a number of prominent senators, for reasons that range from the venal to the mildly less venal. During a parade to celebrate his latest victory, Caesar is approached on the street by a soothsayer who warns him to beware the Ides of March, or March 15th, which he promptly dismisses. But down a side street, the sly Senator Cassius sounds out his friend and brother-in-law Brutus on Brutus's views about Caesar's potential abuses of power. Brutus, much obsessed with his honor and mindful of his friendship with Caesar, is initially demure as Cassius pitches him on joining his conspiracy to take out Caesar for the good of the Republic. He becomes much more intrigued when another senator named Casca joins to inform them that Caesar's confidant and toady Mark Antony appeared to spontaneously offer Caesar the crown, only for Caesar to turn it down to much acclaim from the mob. This only frustrated Caesar, according to Casca, because he secretly wanted to be made king rather than to be praised for denying his ambition. As Brutus sits at home contemplating the choices in front of him, Cassius gathers the other conspirators to discuss their course of action. Cassius, described by Caesar as having a lean and hungry look, which he most certainly did not intend as a compliment, and the other senators know that they need a respectable frontman to lend the conspiracy credibility with the plebes. They decide to arm themselves with flattery, sending forged notes to Brutus that purport to be from regular Roman citizens who want him to restore justice to the people. Sitting in his orchard, Brutus reads the letters and convinces himself that even if Caesar isn't abusing his power terribly now, he certainly will later, and that it is better to kill the serpent in its shell before it can hatch. He joins the conspiracy, but convinces Cassius that they only need to kill Caesar, not Antony, who Cassius fears could stop the coup in its tracks with his silver tongue. On the morning of the Ides of March, Caesar's wife Calpurnia warns him not to go to the Senate because of ill omens and an intuition that he will be killed. She urges him to instead send word to the senators that he is sick and cannot go. After first taking her warning to heart, he changes his mind when an aide tells him that the senators intend to give him the crown and might think him weak and change their minds if he doesn't show up. Caesar arrives at the Senate and is met by Brutus, Cassius, Casca, and the other conspirators. They approach him and then proceed to stab him to death, with Brutus delivering the coup de grace as Caesar turns to him and says, Et tu, Brute? Afterwards, the conspirators meet with Antony, who acknowledges their cause, but asks for the opportunity to bring Caesar's corpse to the forum for funeral speeches to commemorate Caesar's good works. Brutus and the conspirators agree, 
and Brutus then delivers a stilted speech to the plebes that relies on his reputation as an honorable man to explain why the conspirators acted with Rome's best interests at heart. Then Brutus departs. Antony then arrives, Caesar's body in tow, and delivers a slow-burning speech that reminds the crowd of Caesar's fine qualities and constantly references Brutus's honor over the fallen dictator's still-bleeding corpse. In a final flourish, he reads what he claims is Caesar's will, which leaves 75 drachmas to every citizen and promises new parks for the public. The crowd turns against the conspiracy and takes to the streets, lynching a poet that happens to share the name of one of the assassins for his quote-unquote bad verses. The conspirators flee as Rome falls prey to another bout of civil war. At their military camp, Brutus and Cassius bicker over Cassius's tactics, but make peace when they learn that Brutus's wife has killed herself in the wake of his flight from the city. They prepare for battle against the army of Antony, Lepidus, and Caesar's grandnephew Octavian, but not before Brutus is warned by Caesar's ghost that they will lose the fight. On the morrow, Cassius and Brutus accept their fates and wish each other well. The confrontation goes well for the conspirators initially, but due to a miscommunication regarding the capture of Cassius's best friend, Cassius has his manservant kill him, fearing the battle lost. Brutus, filled with grief of his own, fights again the next day at Philippi and watches his army collapse, opting to commit suicide himself by having his adjutant hold his sword while he impales himself upon it. The play ends with Antony praising Brutus for acting in what he thought were Rome's best interests, but leaves the fate of the Sundered Republic unknown. James, thank you for that beautifully written and lovingly delivered plot summary of this most excellent piece of drama. Thank you, Will. I, I have to say, you're, um, I only do this looking for your approval, as you know. But uh, in any case, let me kick off our discussion by saying, as I was going through the process of first of reading and then of preparing to deliver unto you and unto our listeners the story of Julius Caesar, the thought that I kept coming back to was we have a group of fairly disreputable and dishonorable characters in this play who whatever they say, are all basically out for power for themselves. Or maybe you disagree with that analysis on my part, but that's really the way that I view them. So, Will, as our resident political maven, I have to ask you, which of this band of malcontents do you think would be best to be ruled by? Or would you rather be ruled by, I suppose? Excellent question, James. Uh, We've got four very strong personalities here. We have Caesar, the power-hungry but slightly long-in-tooth dictator. We have Cassius, who is essentially a behind-the-scenes, smoke-filled room political operator, doesn't necessarily have the charisma to front the coup attempt himself, but is definitely... Or the, the credibility. Man, or the credibility, but the man definitely behind the scenes who is its mastermind and orchestrator. You have Brutus, who is honorable to a degree, but is also idealistic and deceives himself, both about the righteousness of his cause and about the tactics that one actually needs to succeed in this type of endeavor. And finally, you have Mark Antony, who, in my view, is a shameless demagogue and is definitely my least favorite of the bunch, though he yeah, I was about some to of the say, best speeches. 
I was about to say, it sounds like I can tell which one you're not going with here. Yeah, I, I don't think you can really trust Anthony as far as you could throw him. But I think of the rest of them. Brutus strikes me as a bit too idealistic uh, for his own good, but also a bit blind to his own weaknesses and his own you know, attractions to power himself. Caesar, I think, is getting a little bit over the hill. I think I prefer Cassius. Wow, interesting choice. Definitely not where I thought you were going with that. Can we... Well, I think maybe the, the best approach to this conversation is just to run through each of these characters in turn and talk a little bit about them. Mm-hmm. And maybe we should start with Cassius, since, since he's your choice. Spoiler alert, he's not my choice. But can you talk a little bit more about why you view him as the best possible option here? And I mean in terms of, you know, what qualities do you see in Cassius? Now, let's stay away, you know, if we're going to talk about each of these guys in turn, like, let's stay away from... yeah comparisons uh, yeah, of that just, of that sort at this stage. Yeah. So, and I would say it's a close thing for me between Cassius and Caesar at the end of the day. I think that Cassius offers the virtues of being young and vigorous and clearly possessing the type of foresight that you need to be a step ahead of all of the machinations of the Roman Republic. I think he's a little bit more aware of what's going on in the background and also has a certain degree of caution despite orchestrating a bold plan has a certain degree of caution knowing the dangers of the plebes and knowing also the dangers of the kind of weaknesses of the ruling class and the the patricians and also recognizing that caesar is not a god he's just a man and he's a man that's aging and becoming slightly weaker caesar is half deaf he doesn't really pay attention to warning signs and he may have an overweening sense of power so i approach cassius not as somebody who is overwhelmingly virtuous or even necessarily more virtuous than caesar but perhaps more capable if he were able to achieve the plot in his own terms which he's not able to do but i think he's more i think he's more capable so here's my read on Cassius. And I guess I haven't thought so far as like where in this list of four I would necessarily place Cassius. Like I don't know where I would rank him in this in this Gang of analysis four. specifically. Uh, yes. But I think I would say I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I think I might dispute a little bit. I think you might give Cassius a little bit too much credit you know for his foresight and his and his ability but however i think like you know when you're talking about who you want to be ruled by or who you think is you know would be the best leader i I feel like there's two axes here right i feel like there's an axis of ability but then there's also an axis of vision right and when i say vision I, i like that that's such a cliched word and maybe that's too loaded a term to use in in this context but uh, what i'm trying to get at is i give cassius one major prop over at least specifically brutus which is that i feel like i can i can trust cassius to always do the best thing for cassius and i feel like that lends a degree of predictability to his behavior and predictability can be a virtue in a leader, right? However, I don't know that knowing that Cassius's ultimate loyalty is always and only to himself is like necessarily something 
that I view as praiseworthy or good. If I might, if I might interject on that point, I think it's partially that he's predictable, partially that he's skilled, and to me also that he, I think, has his finger a little bit more on the pulse of the different factions within Rome. And he strikes me as somebody that's going to try and balance these different forces, yes, to keep himself in power and to keep his head, as it were. There is the question of vision, but sometimes the people with visions can be a little scary and can sometimes turn out to be rather power mad. I think Cassius certainly wants acclaim and wants to achieve a degree of renown, but I also see him as somebody who understands that politics is a... A complex profession and it involves balancing various interests against one another, not trying to upset the entire order of things, uh, which, you know, less charitably is the direction in which Caesar is going and certainly Antony is going. Absolutely. You know, now this is all I, yeah. this is all true. I, I just I think ultimately Cassius's almost sole motivator seems to be his like feeling of inferiority. I mean, Antony says it at the end, right? Antony says, all the conspirators, save only he, in this case referring to Brutus, did that they did in envy of great Caesar. And I, I think it's really hard to read Cassius's, you know, various lines and soliloquies and his arguments to Brutus and not come to that conclusion, right? That like, what's driving Cassius is really his envy and his kind of disbelief that Caesar has ended up in so high a station above him. Well, I think so. I, um, right. Like, I let, let me you. just let me just read yeah. let me just read one thing he says here. He says, "Ye gods, it doth amaze me, a man of such a feeble temper should so get the start of the majestic world and bear the part alone." This is after that speech at the beginning where he's talking about the swimming race that he had with Caesar. So, I, I don't know. Maybe you can tell me that you don't think that that's relevant, but. It's a hard pill for me to swallow that, like, the guy that we're trying to elevate into power is essentially just motivated by an insult to his ego. Not even a real insult that is directed at him, by the way. Just that he himself feels like he's not important enough. So I don't know that I entirely agree with your interpretation of that. I mean, partially, he's definitely driven by envy. But I don't think it's a sense of his own inferiority to Caesar. It's actually a sense that he is superior to Caesar in some way, right? Which is what the whole story of the swimming race that he engages in with Caesar is about, where he says, Caesar almost drowned. I'm stronger than Julius Caesar. I also have greater foresight about various things that are happening than Julius Caesar. I'm smarter than Julius Caesar. I can do the job better than Julius Caesar. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he has a 10-point program to improve the public works of Rome and to turn it into a glittering city on the hill. But it does suggest to me there is something here. I mean, I think you can, you can compare him to Caesar in a variety of ways. I actually think Caesar and Cassius have a lot in common to a certain extent, and that they were both are both depicted as being motivated largely by ego and the belief that they should be doing the job and that they should be doing the job because they are innately better qualified in terms of their 
skills, their valor, their abilities, not necessarily honor. I don't know that honor really comes into it for them, but Mm -hmm. I actually see that as something that's actually quite common to lots of politicians. And it's not necessarily an admirable quality in and of itself. In fact, almost very much the opposite. But it does suggest it's not a disqualifier in that sense. It's it's a little bit unseemly from time to time, but it's less unseemly than Mark Antony for sure. And that's why I sort of group Cassius and Julius Caesar. But let me um let me turn it around on you so we don't get bogged down in just Cassius alone. I am hearing between the lines that you would prefer to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Is that correct? Will, how could you possibly have guessed that? Yes, of of these four, I certainly would be a, a Caesarist, if you will, or a Caesarian. I don't know. I don't know what exactly you would term a member of Caesar's party. But I, yes, I would support Caesar of this grouping. And this is where Will, let's let's just take a step back and say that uh, you know we're talking about the play Julius Caesar. And as anyone who has listened to our halfway point episode will know, I'm also fascinated by the character of Caesar in history. And of course, the character of Caesar in the play and the historical personality of Julius Caesar are not the same and we can't conflate them, right? So take everything I say here with that caveat that to whatever degree I like I'm engaging with the literary character of Caesar in Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar I'm trying to separate that from my fascination with the historical character of Caesar, but I can't do that completely. Now, I also would say that there's a degree to which you can't do that completely because, of course, Caesar in the play has arrived at a point where he's arrived because of things that the historical Caesar did. And, of course, audience members, both in Shakespeare's time and in our own time, come to the play knowing at least a little bit about those things, right? So... All that being said, yes, you are correct. I definitely would prefer Caesar out of these four characters. There's a couple of reasons why. I mean, one thing is there's one part of it that's, I will say, maybe a little bit solipsistic or self-proving in a way, right? Like, you know, you were talking about Cassius's having his finger on the pulse and he believes that he's actually superior to Caesar in certain ways and doesn't understand why Caesar should be, you know, should be in power over him and et cetera, et cetera, uh, to which there's one immediate response, which is, show me the receipts, Cassius. You know, what have you done that has caused you to believe that, right? You had a swimming race, Caesar subdued Gaul, and then defeated Pompey in a civil war. (laughs) So, like, there's that. That's obviously a little bit distinct from what's in the play, but I don't think it can fully be separated from what's in the play. Beyond that, in terms of talking about what's in the play, I actually don't think that Shakespeare's Caesar is a particularly attractive character. I certainly don't want to say that he's in any way virtuous, right? Or at least, you know, we don't... Maybe he is virtuous, but if he is, we are not really shown that. And he is a, like, bloviating, egotistical character. However... He may not be virtuous, but you can see the virtues that he does have. He's very perspicacious, at least in terms of his insight into other people's characters, right? I mean, I think of that very famous line that he says about Cassius, where he says, Let me have men about me that are fat, sleek-headed men, and such as sleep a nights. Yon Cassius has a mean and hungry look. 
he thinks too much, such men are dangerous, right? He's able to identify the danger of a character like Cassius. And similarly, and I, this, is, this is an interesting point to me because it's a little bit counterintuitive given what happens in the play, but Caesar does defy danger here, right? He defies the omens or whatever, and he defies Calpurnia's desire for him to stay home. But you also, I think, have to understand that, you know, Caesar's daring and his overconfidence, in a way, is probably something that has enabled him to come to this point. You know what I mean? You have to have a certain degree of boldness and a sense for opportunity if you're willing to cross the Rubicon, defy the Senate, yeah. and declare I mean, yourself the ruler of Rome. There's no question right. about that. I mean, like, let, let me just read. I, and I think there are other... There are other lines of Caesar's where this comes across in a less positive way. But one of the great short speeches in the play is this paragraph of Caesar's where he says, Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. Of all the wonders that I yet have heard, it seems to me most strange that men should fear. Seeing that death, a necessary end, will come when it will come. And that attitude, I think, is like, yes, that does mean that death comes for him in the Senate at a moment when if he listened to his wife, he wouldn't have died. But that is also an attitude that you can, like, you can see why that would have potentially led to him to have great success in life or in his career, I, I suppose. And then in terms of Caesar as a governor, like we don't see that much of Caesar's governing style. We do know that he, at least as Shakespeare represents him, or as he represents himself, right? He says, he has that line about, I am as constant as the northern star. And this, that's an interesting and sort of contradictory point as well, right? Because he is, on, on the one hand, he's committed to a policy and he doesn't want to change his mind about a policy, which... I think can be good or bad, but probably in general is more good than bad. It also shows that he's willing to piss off the senatorial elite, which on the one hand, that's why they kill him. On the other hand, probably you want someone in power who's willing to put his neck on the line for the things that he wants to have happen. So I, I don't know. T tell me, is any of this convincing to you at all? Or are you so, I mean, I, th I think that there's, I think that there's a lot of merit to what you're saying. I think that for me, the challenge comes in the fact that Shakespeare's Caesar has clearly lost a step in a variety of ways. He's perspicacious when it comes to knowing that Cassius is not an entirely trustworthy character, shall we say. But he also mm -hmm. believes that there's there's the slight whiff of somebody who, having succeeded so many times and having had a good nose for opportunity— is riding for a fall, which is exactly what ends up happening to him, in a way. When he is warned, there's a line, I mean, Shakespeare's Caesar is half-deaf, basically. And when mm -hmm. he is having warnings shouted at him, and multiple omens, they're ripping up the guts of various farm animals that they've sacrificed to him in the temple, you know, trying to intuit what the entrails say, and he just wants none of it. He refuses to listen to it. Now, to your point, there's a certain degree of bravery and boldness to that Caesar. But also, you really have to question 
how much he really understands is going on underneath the surface of his own city. And, you know, it's no accident that Caesar's rise to power has involved more or less continuous civil war, you know, historically speaking, and in the context of the play. Now, some of that may just be Rome's a highly unstable place. There's a lot of craziness. Republican Rome is no picnic. Uh, The senatorial elite is definitely uh, not the most admirable cast of characters. But nonetheless, it strikes me that he spent a lot of time having to put down these various challenges and seize various opportunities. But that doesn't necessarily translate to having perspicacity about political affairs in general. And in fact, it may Mm -hmm. dull you to very real threats that exist. You know, I think Cassius could easily slip into that same pattern if he were in charge. There's almost no question of that. Um, But I think think Caesar is vulnerable. Do you think that Caesar falls into this category of military leaders who are most comfortable on the battlefield but are really less comfortable in the rough and tumble of political life? Basically, yes, I do. And I think that as long as Caesar is able to coast on hard-fought military victories, and that's not to diminish those accomplishments, he can enjoy the affection of the very fickle public and control, to a degree, the Senate. Though, obviously, considering a whole bunch of them gather around him and stab him to death, it's uh, not that under control. But, yeah, I think I think he benefits from military victory, but even the finest commanders and finest supreme commanders, you know, c- civilians who end up leading and making tremendous decisions, they often end up riding for a fall because they start believing their own hype. I think Caesar is dangerously on the cusp of potentially doing that here. Now, we don't know, right? We don't know what would have happened had Caesar lived. So there is that caveat. And in that sense, it's kind of a a great unanswered question. We do certainly know that Shakespeare is depicting when that North Star falls away, everything goes to chaos extremely quickly. And Shakespeare is clearly not making uh, an uncritical endorsement of decapitory strikes against national leadership. Yeah, and this is an interesting point. I mean, so Caesar dies almost exactly at the halfway point of the play, I think. But he is only in the play for two acts and a scene or something like that. Like, really not that much time. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say that Brutus is really the main character of this play, right? And I, I think you would agree with me. I, I would, I would. But it is the tragedy of Julius Caesar in the sense that everything revolves around Caesar and everything falls apart the second that Caesar is out of the picture, right? And that may, in a way, be the strongest endorsement of Caesar's, of why you would want Caesar in charge, is just the fact that he's the only one who seems to be holding the whole rickety structure together. And the moment that he, like, what happens when Caesar dies is another bloody civil war, right? Yeah, I think think that's fair. I mean, you could also turn it around and make it use it to illustrate almost the opposite point, that that's a strong endorsement of Caesar in the short term, but it's also somewhat dangerous in the sense that without a viable succession plan or without Mm -hmm. somebody that's able to balance these unstable elements a little bit more artfully, uh, that doesn't depend on constant external military conquest and the destruction of one's civil rivals to maintain power, 
you might be, you know, in a spot of trouble without a without a leader that can sort of translate those victories into right. a more stable political order. Yeah, but but I think that's since true. you brought up Brutus, though, let's let's turn and discuss Dear Brutus. Because as you say, I, I definitely agree with you. He's definitely the main focal point of the play. I think he probably has most of the dialogue when you actually rack it all up and most of the most of the speeches. What do we make of Brutus? I actually wanted to sort of get to this by noting, you know, as regards Caesar. In an interesting way, right, we, we Caesar's judge of character is pretty good or, or seems to be pretty good overall and it seems to be one of his talents. And interestingly, it strikes me that Caesar's downfall ultimately comes because of the one person whose character he misjudges, which is Brutus. Caesar, like everyone else, views Brutus as this honorable character and relies on Brutus's honor. And Brutus also sees himself that way. But ultimately, Brutus makes a crucial decision, like the noble Brutus makes a crucial decision to do a very ignoble thing and join the conspiracy against Caesar. And that's what leads to Caesar's downfall. You can't imagine a conspiracy working without Brutus. Or tell me if you don't think that's true. I mean, it could happen, but all the conspirators talk constantly about how they need Brutus to give a seal of legitimacy to their enterprise. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they certainly, they're hunting for somebody to be the face of this plot, more or less. And they want Cicero, but Cicero wants no part of it because, or they they don't ever even really approach Cicero, who's the probably most prominent senator of the day in some respects, certainly the most eloquent, because he doesn't want to do things that he's not in charge of. He wants to be the face of it, but he wants to have too much control over the content of things. Brutus is the type of guy who he doesn't necessarily need to control every single part of the plot, but he wants to do it in what he views as the right way. And Cassius knows that that's necessary to head off some of the problems that they'll face. And so that's why Brutus is so essential to the ultimate plot, even to the plotter's detriment in some of the conditions that Brutus, uh, you know, imposes upon them, not killing Antony, trying to avoid the really rough stuff that you need to do to make this succeed. But they probably wouldn't have done it if they didn't have Brutus on their side. I think he's a critical, a critical necessary component of the scheme. Yeah. So what do we make of of Brutus will. I mean, he's no less a person than Antony, who his blood enemy at the end of the play refers to him as the most noble Roman of them all, right? And there's this constant drumbeat throughout the play of characters talking about how noble Brutus is. Do you agree? So I think the central point of the tragedy that I see here is Brutus, in many respects, is actually a noble man. And it is his temptation and the fact that he is all too human and succumbs to the blandishments and flattery of the other conspirators and to the appeals to his own vanity and fears of Caesar's actual ambition that he goes down this path, but he allows himself to be seduced into it. You know, and on the other side of it, right, Caesar is certainly full of ambition, but we don't know that it really justifies the drastic lengths to which these men are are going. And just to read a brief passage that solidifies this point and shows that Brutus's decisions are maybe not the best when it comes to joining the plot and are perhaps rather self-serving and not particularly honorable, is when he's actually making the decision to join the conspiracy. 
And as he's going through and describing the fear of how people who are successful ultimately become destructively ambitious, he notes that... The abuse of greatness is when it disjoins remorse from power. And to speak truth of Caesar, I have not known when his affections swayed more than his reason, but tis a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder, whereto the climber upward turns his face, but when he once attains the utmost round, he then unto the ladder turns his back, looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend. So Caesar may. Then lest he may prevent and since the quarrel will bear no color for the thing he is, fashion it thus, that what he is augmented would run to these and these extremities, and therefore think him as a serpent's egg, which hatched would as his kind grow mischievous, and kill him in the shell. I think that what's hilarious about that whole line of reasoning is the three words, so Caesar may. He's willing to kill one of his best friends and the leader of his country on the hypothetical possibility that Caesar turns out to be an ambitious monster. Certainly a possibility, but it's still based on a hypothetical for which there is not necessarily overwhelming evidence in the text of the play. I, I mean, there, not happen. only is there... <laughs> Not only is there no evidence in the text, I mean, Brutus straight out says at some point, now I don't have any proof of this or nothing that he's ever done before has suggested that it's going to happen in the future, but it might happen, right? So the entire, at least as far as Brutus is concerned, the entire construct of the conspiracy is turning on a counterfactual, right? Yeah, I don't think it's entirely to be to be a little bit fair to Brutus. I think all of Caesar's desire to be crowned is another example of Caesar's contempt for the established political order in Rome and his contempt for the Senate. And that's definitely in evidence, I think, in both the historical Caesar's behavior and to some degree in the play with this desire to be crowned and so forth. So it's not like it's coming out of nowhere. But you don't necessarily know what Brutus is really worried about in terms of general consequences. It's not like Caesar necessarily plans to have the Senate disbanded and all of the senators executed. We don't know that, right? Like, that's the part that's sort of the gap is, yeah, okay, it's possible, you know, to use Lord Acton's phrase that that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely— that's certainly a legitimate fear when it comes to Caesar, I think, if you're in Brutus's shoes. But the other side of the coin is you have to have a sense of what absolute corruption actually looks like and some proof that Caesar is about to enact monstrous abuses of power in his role as king. And that is not proven, certainly. <laughs> and you have to have the belief that the alternative is actually better, right? And this, I think, gets, Will, to the heart of my my profound problems with Brutus and, you know, and I, and I think, so when I was initially reading the play, my reaction to Brutus was like, Brutus is actually the worst of all of these guys. And I, that might've been too harsh. However, I do think it's notable that Brutus claims that everything he's doing is for the good of Rome. Right. But there is no 
actual articulation of what the good of Rome means in any mm-hmm. kind of real terms, or why Rome is better off without Caesar than with him. All the language about, or all the arguments about why Caesar has to go, and it's all, you know, I think probably the, the best point of reference for this is Brutus's speech to the plebes in the forum after the execution, right? He says, If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves than that Caesar were dead to live all free men? No! No! As Caesar loved me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. As he was valiant, I honor him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. As tears for his love. Joy for his fortune, honor for his valor, and death for his ambition. Who is here so base that will be a bondsman? If any speak for him, have I offended? Who is here so rude that would not be a Roman? If any speak for him, have I offended? Who is here so vile that will not love his country? If any speak for him, have I offended? I feel like the Constantine speech goes directly to what I'm trying to say, right? Is that the language is all, because I feel like this is, and Will, tell me if there's anything more specific that you're aware of in any of the conversations among the conspirators that you think contradicts this. But my observation is that the arguments against Caesar essentially amount to Caesar will be more powerful than us, and therefore we will be slaves, and that we're acting in the best interests of the Republic, and we're defending the honor of the Republic. But it seems completely divorced to me from any real-life consequences or any real-life actions that Caesar has even taken. And in that light, I find it very hard to wrap my head around the idea that we're actually supposed to view this as an altruistic, noble act. Well, I wouldn't necessarily go that far, right? I mean, and part of this is due to... So I I wouldn't go that far. I I think that part of this is due to the knowledge and memory of why the Roman Republic was established in the first place, right? Which we read about the rape of Lucrece and the horrors of the autocracy and unbridled abuse of power by... uh, the Tarquin, Tarquin, the Tarquinians, Tarquinian kings, uh, and their progeny, right? So it's not exactly like the idea. The idea of a king in Rome is necessarily freighted for these characters. That's not necessarily to put the Senate and its various corrupt and licentious members on a pedestal here. It's just to say that I don't think it's coming out of complete selfishness or complete venality. There's obviously a very healthy serving of that here, and that may, in fact, be the dominant essence when you see it sampled in, in practice from people like Cassius. But it's not coming out of nowhere. Some of this is just old fashioned interest group politics. The patricians don't like Caesar because he's undercutting their power and making them weaker. But it also comes out of a sense of untrammeled power concentrated in a single person 
is ripe for abuse. So I don't think that they're necessarily wrong to fear it, but there's a lot of self-deception in what Brutus is saying, and you can critique Brutus for really clinging to the idea of his honor while recognizing that he's willing to engage in a profoundly dishonorable act, which is betraying and murdering a friend, and doing so for reasons that may have some noble motivation, but are also wrapped up in intensely vain self-justification. I mean, he succumbs and joins the scheme because of flattery. Flattery under false pretenses, but flattery nonetheless. There's a lot of objectionable aspects of Brutus's character that have to do with his egotism and his vanity, which extends to the tactics he's willing to sanction. I mean, he does not want Mark Antony to be killed because he thinks that would be going too far. The truth is, though, and this is sort of where partial admiration for Cassius comes in, at least Cassius understands what must be done to make a plot this audacious work. Brutus doesn't really understand that, and it's because he's really way too deep into his own calculations of what honor looks like. There's a big difference there, and I think the way Brutus becomes sort of idealistic well, it's not even that idealistic, and to the extent that it is idealistic, he's way too wrapped up in it to actually understand the political reality yeah. of what he's embarking upon. That's the problem with Brutus. My feeling about him in these terms is, and this goes to, to you know to what you were describing as the ultimate human tragedy of the play, right? Is that Brutus seems to be caught in a contradiction. He is very committed to the idea of his honor and to behaving honorably and nobly, right? But he also wants Caesar gone. We can talk a lot about what that looks like, how he arrives there, but at the end of the day, he wants Caesar gone just as much as the rest of the senatorial elite do, right? And so... He agrees to this ignoble act, and he wants to turn it into a noble thing. But there's no turning the act of assassinating Caesar on the Senate floor into a noble act, right? It's just not—it just is profoundly ignoble. And so, on the one hand, he's fundamentally not living up to the character that he seeks for himself, right? Which— I mean, I think we can we can have a discussion if we want about what that would look like. But, you know, he's definitely not nobly raising the flag of saying, I oppose Caesar and saying that publicly and standing forward to represent that point of view and that faction. But he's also not willing to take the full measure to achieve the aim that he seems to genuinely think is the best course of action. Yeah, And this is yeah. where, you know, in terms of our conversation about who would you most want to be ruled by, like, this is why Brutus would probably actually be the last on that list for me, because yeah. he's ultimately feckless. He wants the benefit of doing things in the right way, but he's not doing things in the right way, but he's also not willing to pursue his actual goals in such a way that will make them efficacious. Yes, and we should we should move on to talk about why Brutus fails and why Antony, who in many ways is his counterpoint, succeeds when we talk about the speeches in the forum uh, at Caesar's funeral. But 
and that, that which is a perfect illustration of this, but I'd simply say that Brutus, the only way that being part of this plot can really be moral or virtuous in any sense, if you accept the justification and fear of Caesar is legitimate, is making it work. If you're going to embark on a incredibly disruptive and destabilizing revolutionary act of political violence in the universe of this play, you have to commit to its success almost absolutely, right? To actually mm -hmm. make it work. There might be some limit theoretically to what you'd be willing to do, but it certainly wouldn't extend to sparing Mark Antony's life when Mark Antony is the person who can turn the plebes against you and is capable of, and is quite duplicitous in his own right, and will seek victory against you, and will subvert whatever you're trying to achieve. You have to be willing, once you embark on the step, to not take half measures, certainly. Uh, yeah, well, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that's actually a good a good point here to transition to talking a little bit more about Antony. And, and I know, so, you know, I talked a little bit about Brutus's funeral oration, but maybe you can talk a little bit about Antony's rhetoric and, and what you think that gets to with his character and, and with the larger thematic content of this play. So Antony's speech, which follows Brutus's, really establishes how much more perceptive he is about the political mood of the crowd than anything should Brutus we, or the other. Well, well should we just actually start by playing this incredibly famous speech in its entirety? Uh, yeah, we, we absolutely should. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears! I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it was so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here on the leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man. So are they all, all honorable men. Come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this and Caesar seem ambitious? When did the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept? Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal, I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure he is an honorable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You only love him once, not without cause. What cause would hold you then to mourn for him? Oh, judgment, thou art led to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Bear with me, my heart is in the coffin there with Caesar, and I must pause till it come back to me. Antony's speech works because, unlike Brutus's somewhat stilted 
remarks, which are all delivered in prose. Shakespeare wrote it as prose. Antony's is pure poetry. Antony deploys all the tools of rhetoric. He uses the pathos of breaking down weeping over Caesar's body. He uses the logical argument of contrasting Brutus's words with Brutus's actions, illustrated again by the corpse of Caesar lying in front of the plebes. And he also comes forward and uses the ethos of not necessarily his reputation, which is what Brutus's speech is all about. It's all about calling attention to how honorable Brutus is. But Antony shows that he is a friend of Caesar's in a very convincing and emotive way. When he lays all of that out and then really lands the coup de grace when he promises 75 drachmas and infrastructure week to the people of Rome, uh, you know, that's, that's where it really goes into prime demagoguery. And I'm a fan of infrastructure week. Don't get me wrong. More parks in the banks of the Tiber. It sounds fantastic. But I'm not necessarily sure we can really believe that this actually, A, is Caesar's will, and B, that you can really trust Mark Anthony to precisely follow through on that, but it's still brilliant. The plebes turn around, and the mob is firmly on Mark Anthony's side, to the point where they're willing to massacre random poets who happen to share names of the conspirators. Uh, Kill him for his bad verses, Will. Yeah, which is actually, it's one of the most darkly funny and also disturbing scenes that I think we've read thus far in Shakespeare, to be perfectly honest with you. Maybe that's just my horror of mob violence and dislike of crowds, but but I definitely think that uh, that it is pretty gripping. So anyway, all of that is to say, Mark Antony is a masterful demagogue and a rather scary individual, I think, because of his skills at whipping people into a fervor. Of course, we will find out what happens to him in Antony and Cleopatra. But nonetheless, Antony yeah. versus Brutus, there's no contest here in terms of who is more politically skilled and really understands the potential of what can happen in this moment of flux. Yeah, there's something almost hot spurian about Antony now that I think about it. And, and maybe that just goes to illustrate kind of what I do like about him, which is that I feel like he's the only one of the... I I mean, I sort of put Caesar in a different category because Caesar starts the play on top. But in terms of these other characters who are orbiting and sort of trying to assert their claim to dominance, I guess, maybe maybe that's why it's different, right? Is that Caesar is already dominant and these other characters are rotating each other, trying to gain power over each other in the absence of Caesar. Mm -hmm. Antony's the only one who really seems to understand immediately and intuitively where he stands. Brutus is caught in this contradiction, right, that we talked about. Cassius is a backroom dealer, but he's not really forward-facing. You know, you know, Cassius really just wants to be the power behind the throne, right? Mm-hmm. Antony sees Caesar's body and immediately, like, immediately knows what his course of action is and immediately starts pursuing that course of action. And that begins by being deceptive to the conspirators. He has this kind of great speech to Caesar's body with, you know, the cry havoc and let's let the dogs of war speech. Mm-hmm. And he knows what card he's going to play and he knows he's going to live or die by that card. And then later on, you know, we see him with Octavian. And actually, Will, I think this would be another another point that I would say is 
just worth noting in terms of the question about Caesar versus the conspirators versus Antony or versus the alternatives, right? Caesar is actually going to the Senate. He's interacting with men that stood against him with Pompey, Mm -hmm. who he has overcome, and now he is like sort of trying to rule. The only sight we ever see of Antony in the process of ruling is Antony and Octavian, one, issuing prescriptions, talking about who they're going to kill, and then Antony talking to Octavian about how Lepidus, their third triumvir, is a useful (laughs) tool, and how Antony views him as essentially like his horse. Yes. You know, yeah. I'm not saying that this is Shakespeare's intention, but also I think it would be foolish not to think that Shakespeare was aware of it, that like the contrast between those two things is pretty extreme. And I think we can agree on which one we would prefer. Anyway, all of which is to say, I think there is a certain level of cunning and effectiveness to Antony that is useful in a leader. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, it absolutely is. I also just think that it's worth it keeping in mind. I mean, I think you want to talk about dictators. I think Mark Antony is the example, perhaps even more so in some respects than the original man on horseback in the figure of Caesar. Mark Antony is almost even more so the idea of a true dictatorial personality, cult of personality type guy in some ways. The demagoguery, the effective rising the passions of the plebes, and the sort of ruthlessness that Brutus, in the final analysis, simply lacks. But Cassius might have, but certainly Brutus lacks. He's got the charisma, he's got the commitment, and he's got the manipulative qualities that you need to achieve dominance in a place like Rome. The danger, I think, is if Brutus, the fecklessness of Brutus is the problem, where he's unwilling to commit, essentially, he's unwilling to go the extra step of the way because he's willing to draw some lines that maybe shouldn't be drawn if you're already willing to embark on a coup and are willing to take over the country, essentially. Antony has no restraints whatsoever. There's no limit to which Anthony is not willing to break or surpass in his quest for power now mm-hmm. that he sees an opportunity. And that's why Anthony scares me. I mean, I think it's a toss-up, again, between Brutus and Antony about who I would least like to be ruled by. But Antony is, is definitely more frightening on a world historical scale to me, that type yeah, of Yeah, I, I think that is fair. Look, ultimately, I think if you had to choose between sort of iron-willed, dictatorial, and murderous effectiveness versus kind of well-meaning, decadent fecklessness, probably the latter is what you want. But I don't think either outcome is... Neither is optimal. I think the risk of the Brutus approach is internal weakness and disorder and the type of collapse into civil conflict. I think Antony is more of a destabilizing, potentially overweening, invade your neighbors, engage in all sorts of uh, skullduggery, and maintain a, uh, a court. It's sort of a as if Richard III had been 
out there waging war overseas and had actually killed all of his rivals at the outset and was just hellbent on destabilizing all the other kingdoms around, yeah. around which England had to deal with. That's yeah. the that's the danger of the Antony personalities. He could actually pull it off in a way that Brutus is, you know, sort of feckless and weak around these things. So, Will, I think we've done a pretty good job teasing out some of the political aspects of this play and trying to get at some of the things that Shakespeare's talking about. Before we go, I do think that this play has some real political significance or, or like relation to our own world in general, but I feel like in this present moment today, it leaps out and hits you in the face, sort of, right? So this play has a bloody and disturbing portrayal of mob violence. It's only a couple weeks ago that we saw a similar such incident in our nation's capital. So I guess I'm wondering, like, you know, is there anything that Shakespeare can tell us about what's going on in our country right now and about those events at the Capitol? And also, do you think that having seen this happen uh, in our country, do you think that that has caused you to approach Shakespeare's play in a different way at all? Yeah, it definitely has. There are always unexpected resonances reading Shakespeare and thinking about politics, and in my case, living in Washington, D.C., that are especially poignant in light of the insurrection in the Capitol. And uh, I think that there's there's a very trite and facile way to try and make parallels between direct characters, and sometimes you can kind of miss the point. I think that there are definitely some individual parallels here and there, but it's really more about the ways in which people use their power responsibly and irresponsibly. And there's a there's not really much utility, I think, from kind of the direct comparison. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm reminded that back in 2017, there was uh, the Public Theater in New York did a staging of Julius Caesar and they portrayed Trump as Caesar. And there are all of these parallels and it ultimately ended up getting canceled, I think, or sponsors pulled down support. That's less interesting to me. One, because there's obviously discontinuities here you know trump is inciting the mob you know wasn't the victim of any sort of uh, illegitimate effort to displace him so there there are none of the parallels that drive the plot in julius caesar but there is the exercise of power by unscrupulous individuals that are basically playing with very dangerous fire mm-hmm. uh, and mark antony i think as i was saying earlier is the demagogue you know in the extreme indulging the wildest fantasies of the mob, and that's where you get the dangerous realization of mob violence. So I do think that there's something very powerful here, less so about the mechanics of the plot, but more how people choose to exercise their power and indulge the fantasies of various people in the body politic, and then what happens as a result of that. So that that I've been thinking about a lot. So, Will, what, what leaps out at me in thinking about the comparison and thinking about what Shakespeare can tell us about what happened or what has been happening in our country and in particular about what happened a couple weeks ago in Washington is that Shakespeare portrays Antony as very aware of what he's trying to do, right? Antony knows that his goal is to whip up the mob and get them to go and attack the conspirators, essentially. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what the intentions were, I think... What Shakespeare shows is that the passions that are aroused when that happens are not controllable. And it might be that Antony is successful 
and I think he is proximately successful in getting what he wanted. But I don't think, Ant- you know, if you went up to Antony and said, you know, what do you think is going to happen? I don't think Antony would say, well, the poet Cinna is definitely going to die because he's got the same name as one of the conspirators. You, you, you <laughs> yes. know what I mean? And yeah. so, like, what Shakespeare's showing us, it, it feels like, is that, you know, you can cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war in Antony's earlier formulation when he was looking at the at the body of Caesar. But when you do that, you know, and when you incite that kind of violence, you're definitely playing with fire, right? You're, you're releasing something that you have no real control over. And that's, that really struck me as the biggest takeaway about where there's real overlap and insight of Shakespeare, particularly having seen this just happen here, is that these passions are creating, you know, are leading to certain extremely negative outcomes. And once they've been whipped up, nobody knows what could happen, you know? Mm -hmm. And in in Shakespeare's play, it's the death of Cinna, who is torn for his bad verses. And at the Capitol, right, there, you know, it was the death of a Capitol police officer. And Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone would have said that they intended for that to happen. Though, who knows, I guess. But it did happen because that's what happens when you, you know, when you whip people up in this way. And it should be known by people that are in positions of political authority, that their words have weight. I mean, obviously in the crowd on January 6th, you had hardcore uh, white supremacists and militia members and people that uh, were probably intending something to happen, regardless of what Donald Trump or anybody else said. But there were plenty of other people that were clearly whipped into a fervor and given the sense that storming the Capitol was something that was sanctioned from on high. Now, of course, the people in positions of political authority can say whatever they want after the fact and talk about what their descriptive, what their words actually mean if you take them down on paper, uh, which is what many of them are doing. Well, and Brutus is an honorable man, right? Right, right. I mean, I think that Mark Antony is a great exemplar of a lot of these politicians, you know, a lot of the the House Republicans and some of the Senate Republicans and certainly the president himself, who there is a sense of, well, I didn't actually tell them to go kill that Capitol police officer. I didn't tell them to rampage through the halls of the Capitol. Nonetheless, that is what they did, you know, and it's this fine line where obviously Mark Antony knows that he is going to turn the mob against the conspirators and that when that happens, other people tend to get caught in the crossfire. And even in this case, right, I mean, it's even worse in some ways because the election was legitimate and all of the reasons that the parallels are are not going to work between Julius Caesar and our political situation. But I guess the point is, if you take a step back, in one sense, right, who could have predicted that all of these particular things happened? But the general sense that when you incite people, when you feed them misinformation, when you kindle false hope, and when you portray everything as an apocalyptic showdown, well, guess what? You may not have predicted that Sin of the Poet is going to get ripped limb from limb. You may not have predicted that a Capitol Hill police officer was going to be murdered, but you could certainly have guessed that violence might have issued from that and that people may have been killed, even if you couldn't say specifically. So there's a certain effort by some people to wash their hands, you know, mm-hmm. of people in positions of high power and authority to wash their hands of, of responsibility for stuff like this. 
And I think Shakespeare is sort of showing that people that behave like that and that take that attitude are probably, well, they're definitely not to be trusted in a, in a real sense because they should know better. Uh, and even if they shouldn't know better, they're often intending ill, even if what they're literally saying is Brutus is an honorable man. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's uh, with the actual intention and what they're actually feeding. It can be completely the opposite in its effect and, and intent. Right. Let me ask you, Will, because you, as you said, the, the circumstances are different. We are not in Shakespeare's play. Shakespeare's play is not the capital. I actually do want to touch on some of those discontinuities that you referenced quickly, just in the sense that, like, I, I wonder if there's something worthwhile in asking how the discontinuities alter our perception of, you know, of these respective situations or not, right? I mean, and Mm -hmm. and so to me, the obvious one is just like the basic and fundamental discontinuity is that in Shakespeare's Rome, there is a real political outrage that has happened, right? I I mean, you may or may not be pro-Caesar, you know, you may or may not think that Caesar should be dictator, you may or may not think that it would be good for the Senate to retake control. Regardless of those things, it is factually true that the conspirators murder Caesar in an incredibly violent, brutal way and like then literally bathe themselves in his blood. After Caesar dies, Brutus says to the other conspirators, stoop, Roman, stoop, and let us bathe our hands in Caesar's blood up to the elbows and besmear our swords. Then walk we forth even to the marketplace and waving our red weapons or our heads, let's all cry, peace, freedom, and liberty. So in the context of the play, not only is it very clear that something incredibly dramatic and unprecedented and violent has happened, and like uh, something like very destabilizing has happened, but the conspirators are even trying to make it broader known, like more known that they've done mm-hmm. this thing. Whereas there was no outrage, as you are, as you said previously, like there was no outrage that happened in the election, right? As much as Trump may like to claim that the election was stolen, so I just wonder if your view of Antony's reaction to what happens to Caesar versus your reaction to the incitement of the mob in Washington is any different, just in light of that fact in light of the fact that mm-hmm. one was responding to something that did happen and one was responding to something that was completely fake. In, in many respects, right, it makes it even worse in my view because you really have to be living in a kind of fantasy world. I mean, and and to be clear, I think this is one of the great reasons people were primed for violence in the first place and why the incitement by these unscrupulous politicians is so bad because in many respects, right, the people in that crowd, and I can't speculate to all of their understandings of what has happened, but basically, right, if the slogan is stop the steal, they do view it in a way like there has been a gross breach of American democracy, and they do view it as something akin to, you know, a beloved leader being illegitimately removed from power, and they are going to act accordingly, right, which is exactly what Antony stirs them up to do. The problem is... Antony won in Caesar. He's responding to something that actually happened. He's also a bit cynical. 
in our world, I think, you know, some of the people that are the most vocal on this point are absolutely cynical. Mm -hmm. And I find it very hard to believe that some of them actually believe there was any outrage whatsoever that they can really point to with tangible evidence. They're trying to basically ride the tiger of resentment. Right. Yeah. So, so into power on their own. They've, they're creating an alternate reality in which an outrage actually happened. Right. Right. And so there's, and and so the, there's a fundamental dishonesty to it. Yeah, I, I guess I guess I'm basically in agreement with you, right? I think Antony is cynical and like causes the crowd to revolt and to engage in in violence. But I also understand that Antony fears for his life, right? I mean, it's only because Brutus is so attached to his honor that <laughs> Antony isn't killed the way Cassius wants him to be killed, right? So right. I think it's easier to, as weird as it sounds to say to empathize with Antony. I think I think it's much more understandable what Antony does as opposed to this kind of opportunism that you're describing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh that's right. Because at the end of the day, you know, Antony, I definitely find him to be a um a troubling figure in the context of Julius Caesar, but yeah, you understand his his motives and motives even from a position of survival to some degree, as well as his opportunism. But I think in our world, we're living in a time where opportunism to the point of amorality and immorality is very common among Mm -hmm. a certain subset of politicians. Now, I can't speak for all of the members of the House, some of whom may well believe some of these crazy conspiracy theories, but I think of Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, for instance. These are people that clearly have positioned themselves at various points as if they know better, Mm -hmm. and they want one message to a sophisticated audience and then have another message for people that are passionately committed to President Trump and genuinely believe the election is stolen. In that case, there's something really, um, it's really a repellent level of cynicism in my mind that's really hard to get over watching that unfold. I agree, Will. I think that's a an ideal place to end because it's extremely dispiriting. I hate to imagine that there is any vector on which we're in a worse place than Rome after the brutal assassination of Caesar, but it's really hard for me, Will, to look at the level of prevarication and deceit and not view it as fundamentally worse, as dark as that sounds. Yeah, yeah. Well, James, I would say I am with you in terms of being dispirited and in a dark place, but the good news is a peaceful transfer of power was effectuated. We have a new president. In Julius Caesar, there's a bloody civil war that follows in the final act, followed by prolonged internal strife and more civil war spilling out into the hinterlands of the Roman Republic. So I would just say we're not there. And I think we can take some comfort in the fact that ultimately it was not a a truly peaceful transfer of power in all the particulars, but we did have a peaceful transfer in the way that matters. That's right. Yes, yes, that's true. And the the total lack of legitimate institutions that exist in Rome is not the case yet here. I think I think that's I take true. Some, and I think I, there I is, take some comfort I, in yeah, those I, in that. I think yeah. there is some reason for optimism there. I think you're right. Yeah. So James, how do you rack and stack this one in terms of your rankings? Ooh. Ah. So interesting. I really like this play. I think it shares an issue with Henry the Sixth Part Two, Will, which is that 
really the play climaxes a little bit early. You know, the play climaxes mm-hmm. with the assassination of Caesar and then with the dueling speeches between Brutus and Antony. And really, once yeah. you hit Act 4, it's sort of a long denouement to the end, right? That said, it's definitely top tier for me. It's it's really a question of where it's going to fall in my top tier. And I think for me, it's going to end up as number three between Richard III and Henry mm. V. And to me, I would say, I think Antony ends up being the MVP on the strength of his great funeral oration for Caesar and his ability to drive the mob following the death of Caesar. What about you? So I had similar feelings. Uh, It's definitely a top contender for me. I think it's uh, number two, ultimately, in my universe. And I think the plot structure is really what holds it back, kind of loses some momentum by the time the conspirators flee. Completely agree there. I was going to say Mark Antony as well, but for the sake of variety... Well, we are allowed to have the same MVP sometimes. Yeah. I know, I know. But it's tough because Anthony really does sort of suck the oxygen out of the room at a certain point. Eh, it's Mark Anthony. I mean, I'm just going to go with that. That was going to be my answer, and I'll stick with it. I would prefer to have a beer with Cassius and would certainly not trust Mark Anthony in any professional context. But I think it's got to be Mark Anthony. The fulcrum on which the play uh, ultimately turns and accelerates in the opposite direction of the way that it it would have gone otherwise. And Will, do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week? In fact, I do, James. I would like to recommend Madeline Miller's book, The Song of Achilles, which is a novel that follows... Achilles and Patroclus, his friend, before they head off to war in the Iliad and then climaxes in telling the story of that epic war, the Trojan War. And I particularly recommend this book on Audible or on audiobook. I have listened to Circe, part of one of Mad- it's one of Madeline Miller's other books, which focuses on Circe from the Odyssey. Great book. Great audiobook, really well performed. I'm listening to The Song of Achilles, and it's it's fantastic. Great voiceover work, really well written, really puts you back in ancient Greece. Reminded me of all the classical literature I read in college, and takes it and gives it a unique and contemporary spin without ever feeling ridiculously trendy or modish it feels really well thought through well put together beautifully written beautifully narrated classical in tone uh powerful work give us the title one more time will that is madeline miller's the song of achilles and that's our show next time on bard flies all the world will be a stage in as you like it a road trip comedy through the french countryside Thanks for tuning into Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.